When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me, is it two times Emmy Award winning? Yes, it is. Two times award, Emmy Award winning uh, producer, director, Marilyn Ness. Hello, Marilyn. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Now, it's my pleasure. Now, we're, we're talking about a film that you made in 2010 called Bad Blood, A Cautionary Tale, which, for the listener to understand the context, is having its first UK screening at the end of September and it's going to be at the ICA and it's actually it's actually free to go and see it but you you must you, you need to contact the uh, the organizers and get it through a ticketing system which I'll put in the in the show notes for the podcast so that is why we're doing it so um it's part of uh, I think in, in the UK it's being shown as part of general lobbying that's going on to want to um get a public inquiry into what's called the Factor 8 scandal in Britain to do with haemophiliacs who are being treated with with a, with, a, with a medical product that contaminated them with hepatitis C and HIV, uh, of which, sadly, 4,800 British people uh, got infected in the late 70s, early 80s. Now, your, your documentary is, is, is the US side of that story. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what your documentary is? Sure. Um, yeah, so Bad Blood covers the story of 10,000 Americans who contract HIV and hepatitis C. Uh, uh, 15,000 contract hepatitis C, which was the entire hemophilia population wow. from their FDA-approved medication. Um, FDA, for those who don't know, is the, the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates um, all products that come out and are used by people in this country, and despite their regulation and oversight, there was this mass infection, and it was the worst medically induced, medically induced disaster in the history of the U.S., mm. um, and so we wanted to tell the story of what happened to this group of people, because it was astonishing to us that I think, by and large, most people don't realize what had happened um, in, the early, in the late 70s and early 80s with regard to, to this particular medical catastrophe. Yeah, now, just to give the, the listeners some context as far as how I came to this, and, and then we'll go into how you ended up making the movie. Um, I was just at a birthday party talking to someone, and they told me that about it, and it was a scandal I wasn't aware of in the slightest, yet clearly it's 
the numbers are huge in terms of the uh, in terms of what's actually happened in terms of the amount of people affected. So how how did you you come to make this documentary? Now the interesting thing that I, just just on the kind of making of it, it was ten years in the making. Is that right? It was. It was. I mean, some of that is just the the trials and tribulations of an independent documentary filmmaker. So okay. no one came to me and said, here's money to make a film about this. It was the other way around. And I felt passionately about the story hmm. um, and felt it hadn't been told. And so sort of put myself to the task of making a film and raising the money all the while. And so that's what took 10 years. And I had a couple of babies and I worked other jobs, you know. Mm. Um, I think the hard labor of making the film was about five years, uh, okay. you know, when, when accumulated. So I came to the story of Bad Blood through a childhood friend of mine named Matthew Kleiner. And we, you know, he was two years older than me, my sister's age. And so, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s with Matthew and, you know, AIDS was just emerging. Um, people didn't really understand what it was yet. Mm -hmm. um, and it was still whispered about in most corners. And by the time we all got to college, um, Matthew came out publicly that he was, in fact, HIV positive um, and was a real role model and educator of youth about safe sex and sex education. Um, and so after College One, I had gone into documentary film. He approached me and said, do you know how I contracted HIV in the first place. And I said, you know, I've known you your whole life and I have no idea. And so he began to unravel the story about drug companies that were knowingly infecting patients with hepatitis and that the federal regulators knew this was happening, both the FDA as well as the Centers for Disease Control, and nobody was preventing it. Hmm. Um, and would I be interested in learning a little bit more? And, you know, it, it sounded like you know, a complicated version of house or something. You're like, how could people not realize that they were being infected with HIV and hepatitis? And so I dug in and then I just became appalled <laughs> that this was the worst medically induced disaster in the history of the U.S., that it was entirely preventable um, and, and that we didn't know more about it. Um, and so, you know, there were things I learned along the way, um, one of which is that it was in fact, had people been paying attention to the warning signs, had the drug companies and the, the federal regulators not been permissive that there be hepatitis in the product and that was an acceptable state of being, um, then they would have prevented HIV from trip, from, um, being to infecting all of these people, uh, really? within the hemophilia community. Yeah. It wow. could have been prevented. Um, and so that, that was an alarming thing to have learned. And so it, it really spoke volumes to the way in which drugs are regulated in this country. Uh, Factor is actually a blood product. So it's made from human blood donation. And, um, you know, it, it, it really impacted the way blood was collected in this country. So there was a lot of things that still had re relevance moving forward into the future, even well beyond the hemophilia population. Um, so, so the, so that was one of the reasons I dug in, um, was to tell Matt's story, and then it became clear over time that, in fact, we couldn't treat this as one person's tragedy. It was really a communal failure, and we really needed to look at the story from all sides. Um, and so we went about finding other families who survived this. Um, we spoke to the doctors who were responsible for prescribing the medication to their patients, the nurses who cared for their children, that they were helping um, to survive hemophilia only to be felled by HIV, um, we spoke to the, we got the regulator from the Centers for Disease Control, who was the seminal one in figuring out exactly what was happening in the hemophilia community and why, and 
and help people understand how HIV was actually being passed. Um, we've got one of the regulators at the Food and Drug Administration to come forward and talk about it. We spoke to one of the pharmaceutical company executives who had not spoken publicly before about his decisions in terms of not cleaning the product and then switching to cleaning the product, um, the, the blood product that infected people. So we really, I think, made the seminal film that, that told the story of this community from all sides, uh, which had not been done before. How, how, I mean, the obvious, the obvious reaction is, is, is obviously one of outrage, isn't it? Yes. So, so, so how, how did you as the sort of filmmaker not allow that emotion to overtake the pursuit of, of the story so people could understand it as opposed to just be outraged by it? Because obviously it's, it's on, on the surface it's outrageous no matter which way you look at it. But you, you developing this as a documentary, how did you sort of follow that thread without sort of always banging your fist on the table almost? Well, I think it was, you know, the anatomy of a disaster in many ways. And I thought better to have the honest input of all of the key decision makers mm. in a crisis like this than pick a side and stick with it. And you wouldn't, you would never then be able to cross, you know, the aisle, so to speak, to get yeah. the insight from the other side. So our, our, my perspective in all films that I make, um, and, and certainly honed in during Bad Blood, was to say, we want the honest account of what you felt happened. And I think there's a little cognitive dissonance that goes on in the world. Um, and I think, you know, the pharmaceutical company executive did not wake up intending to kill 10,000 people with the medication he was making. Mm. You know, he had some belief that what he was doing was right. And in fact, he does in the film say, I was bringing a product to market that was saving people who were largely dying by the age of, you know, late 20s. Mm. So they were living, but there was the sad side effect to it, which was giving everyone hepatitis. So he had some rationale for why he was still comfortable with his place in the world that he had done good. Um, and so we allowed everybody to tell the story from their perspective, which I think had been the reason this hadn't been really chronicled before was that you were either in one camp or the other. And the fact that we were willing to hear all the sides um, somehow opened people up to us. Uh, and also enough time had passed. We were just past the litigation. A lot of the litigation had been settled. Right. Um, and so there wasn't that hanging over people's heads anymore. And people were just starting to retire. So whereas Bruce Evett previously at the Centers for Disease Control would never have been given the permission to do an interview for a film. Yeah. Um, he had just retired. And apparently I was one of the first phone calls he made where he said, okay, I can talk to you now. And that happened across the board a number of times. So, um, and I think then people just felt like they wanted, they knew this was a really important part of the historical record and they wanted it documented. So I think we hit a good moment in time. And my, one of my proudest moments, the very first screening we had in New York and we brought together really a lot of people who had not been in the same room in many, many years. Yeah. <laughs> um, from the pharmaceutical company executives to the families who had lost loved ones. And everyone to a person had said when they finished screening the film, they didn't like everything in it, but they thought it was true, that it represented the reality of what had happened. Um, and I thought, you know, if everyone shouldn't be happy when you finish a film or you didn't do it right. Mm. But I was pleased that everyone found it honest. How, how did you, because obviously a documentary is not scripted. I mean, that's, that's, I'm just pointing out the obvious there. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously you, uh, when you make a feature length documentary, you've got to then, create a narrative that that feels like it's dramatic yes so um, for the audience's benefit in a way isn't it you've got you've got to take us up and down and up and down 
And in terms of what you were discovering, and get, and get add into that fact what you just told me now, which is you were getting people to speak on this subject that wouldn't publicly have spoken about it 10 years previous to when you started this. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you've got voices that are new to the, to the public sphere. How, how did you contain that? How did you manage to sort of, you know, weave all those, the new voices with the sort of people that were sort of camp, the campaigning voices that would have always been talking about it with suddenly the new voices, which were admitting that something went wrong or, or, or what their motivation was and things like that. How, yeah. I mean, so it was, it was, you know, the edit of a documentary film is almost always the one of the longest periods because it does take a long time to figure out how to weave the stories together. And sometimes as you go, you realize you've neglected a portion of the story and you go back and you get it. I mean, the way we did Bad Blood as a historical documentary, um, because most of the events had already transpired, we told most of the film using archival footage, um, you know, family photographs, and then using people's interviews to recount what had happened to them in their childhoods and then through these very difficult years. Mm. So we had a little more latitude, unlike some films that I make today where we're doing a verite film and unfolding, uh, following an unfolding story yeah. where you really don't know what's happening. We at least understood the chronology of what had happened. Mm. Um, and we did do, I think, some original thinking about this and lining up all of the events that had taken place in the world and really understanding where there were these moments of intersection where the world could have been different had people made different choices. Um, and so there was some, you know, uh, uh, some original thinking in terms of how to thread the stories together. So you understood those moments of inflection where maybe things could have been different. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I worked with a writer, Sheila Kern Bernard and a wonderful editor, Marion Hunter, who are both storytellers in their own right, very gifted. Mm. And when Sheila came on to start working on the film with me, um, she said, she said, you know, you have a, an embarrassment of riches with this film. The story was so rich. There were so many people who were so, um, hurt and saddened by what had happened. You know, there, there was, it was hard though. There were some smoking guns. There was no evil people really, you know, everyone had been doing their best or so they thought. Mm. Um, and so she said, as a writer, she said, better, better to have too much than too little, right? We weren't trying to spread things and to make it longer. We really had to cram it all in, which was, you know, a, a challenge certainly, but I think made for a richer film. I mean, just when you get going in the film and you think there's an insult, you know, there's an initial injury and then there's an insult to that injury and then a further insult to the next injury and another insult, you know, it winds up really, I think, to your earlier point, making you very angry, but also gives people a place to, to hope uh, for, for change. And there are activists in the film who are able to find justice in their own ways. And, you know, I think it allows people to feel some redemption at the end, um, even if it is filled with great sadness too. How, how do you feel that your, your perception of what you knew about the subject when you started the, the film and then your perception when you'd finished the film, what was, how much change do you think went on there for you? I mean, there was no doubt something terrible had been done. Um, mm. And I don't think people were entirely honest about it all the way through because, you know, there were lawsuits pending and governments that couldn't, couldn't, you know, admit fault. Mm. Um, and I, we had some really damning footage in the film. There's a really tough scene where you see how the product is made. And I think people are physically ill after seeing it. So, so I did none of that. That was all material I had from the very early days. 
I think what was moving for me was to see how profoundly saddened the medical community was by the by what had happened, that doctors, and one of the reasons I named the film Bad Blood was that it was the relationships that were most heartbreaking. There were doctors testifying against their own patients um, in, as this litigation unfolded where drug companies were compelling doctors to testify on their behalf. Mm. Um, and the patient advocacy group was, we named them in the film as working too closely with the drug companies and not looking out for the patient's best interest. And so I think what for me, I knew the wrongdoing was there. I think I hadn't realized how painful it was for everybody that the doctors who cared for these boys from the day they were born, usually, you know, it's a lifetime illness, um, thought that they were all going to be cured or, or if not cured, you know, managed into a chronic illness with this new miracle drug. And then it turned out 10 years on, most of their patients were dead. Um, I think that was understanding the human toll of this was really um, heartbreaking and eye-opening for me. Mm. And then, you know, I think there's, you know, the world is gray, right? You know, (laughs) if only it were easy to make cut and dry decisions, but, you know, the drugs were made by pharmaceutical companies who were out there to make a living and wouldn't have been making the drug at all if it wasn't profitable. And I don't agree with the decisions that were made at the time that increased profits and decreased product safety, but they were allowed to do it by a host of places, including the drug company, the um, far, the Food and Drug Administration. Hmm. So, you know, you really start to open a Pandora's box of how the sausage gets made and what risk we're all at. You know, this, this applies to all pharmaceuticals, um, no matter where, you know, they're made by someone with a series of complicated decisions and they're usually financial. Hmm. So I think that was... Um, you know, the end of innocence for me, like you could be outraged, but uh, how do we work within the system that's been built? You know, if you need life-saving medication, how, do, how does that get made in real time, you know, with real life consequences? And that was too bad to <laughs> to yeah. have that innocence lost. <laughs> how, 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 I mean, it, it's when you're going up against something like, like what, what a government might be responsible for or what, you know, international pharmaceutical companies might be responsible for. How, how much resistance do you face and, and, and how do you overcome that? Are you having to sort of present what you found on the other side and say, look, you know, if, if we don't hear your side of this, then what we've got is just the finger pointed at you. Exactly. Well, so that certainly was the tack I took um, and why we got a pharmaceutical company executive to sit with us for an interview. Um, but I have to tell you, there's some pretty big companies still working in this space. Mm. Um, the products are much safer, but we're talking about places like Bayer, um, you know, the not small companies who mm. the products were so, so, so just the quick primer is that the factor eight is the, 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 the medication is made by taking human blood at the time, taking human blood, extracting the protein that's missing in hemophilia patients, and then essentially transfusing it back into them so that if they're having a bleeding episode, the factor eight that helps you clot uh, that is missing in a hemophilia's body is actually being provided to them in a blood donation, essentially. Mm -hmm. The the thing was what the pharmaceutical companies did and made this medication sort of miraculous was they figured out how to kind of get rid of all the extra blood parts and just boil it down to the basic factor eight uh, molecule that was missing, which patients would then inject. And um, it could have been heated to make it safer, but that made less factor. It killed more of the factor eight. And so the, the drug companies opted not to do it. 
And then, and so, and so now you know the rest, right? So then people are contracting hepatitis and then they're contracting HIV. In present day, so the drug companies learned from this terrible tragedy and figured out a way very quickly, actually, in fact, Mm. to clean the product up as soon as it became clear that they were infecting everybody. And they did that by the very early 1980s, but nonetheless, an entire generation was lost. Yeah. Um, And so they've since made genetically engineered blood products, factor eight. You don't actually need human blood to make the medication anymore, though some people still use little bits of it. But it, you know, so they've really changed their ways. And so there was not one company um, that was happy, Baxter, Bayer, that were happy that I was revisiting this Hmm. with a platform for it to be on U.S. national public television and for it to be distributed internationally. Everyone was sort of like, why are you revisiting this painful moment in our history? We've made the product safer. Why are you scaring new mothers? Um, but the patient advocacy groups didn't feel that way. They felt if we forget this history, we've lost our best chance at protecting ourselves in the future because it won't be HIV, but it'll be something else next. Um, And you had that episode with mad cow disease or Jacob Kreutzfeldt disease in the UK, which was transmitted in blood products. So it was, there was a very clear example of what happens if you're not vigilant next. And so the drug companies tried for a while to kind of just bully me a little bit, you know, and I was an independent filmmaker um, and I didn't have a lot of resources and, you know, yeah, money wasn't what I had, but I had relationships. I had all of the main hemophilia advocacy groups in the U.S. and internationally, the National Hemophilia Foundation, the World Federation of Hemophilia, the Committee of 10,000, the um, and AHF, American Hemophilia Foundation, had all agreed that this film was important to them and their membership. Okay. And so when the drug companies would kind of get on my case and scare me, those those four groups would all sort of rally around me and form a circle and basically say, you have to go through us to get to her and we want the film. And so they, you know, they stood by me. And for them, I think it wound up being a huge educational tool, both to inform their own, um, their own patient advocacy groups of what, what's the importance of advocating for oneself. And it, it served to also, you know, shed, shine a light on this story that had long been forgotten. No, no. I mean, I think that's, that's, I think that's one of the most powerful things about documentaries is, is, is that, and certainly feature lens ones because they they make an event that's shining a light on something you might not be aware of, but then once you see the light's been shone on it, it's hard to forget what it is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think so. I think there was a lot of new families who didn't know the history. Their parents whose kids just are born with hemophilia and didn't know the history, and now they know that they need to be advocates. And then I think for the families, the ten thousand who were lost, there had never been a monument. There was no memorial. It just sort of happened and passed. And I think for them, they felt like it was an opportunity to be remembered um, and to have their loved ones remembered. Um, and we, you know, we were proud to to help bring those stories back so that, you know, they weren't lost in vain. They could be remembered for something important and promote a greater vigilance. So, yeah. So with, with that support of, of, of the various groups and, and, and associations, was that because you the, the kind of pressure you were getting was um, – you you put you make this film at your peril kind of thing. Is that the kind of noise you were hearing? From yeah, they had different it? strategies. I mean, <laughs> One drug company, you know, because we went to all of them and as to, exactly as you said, we said, why don't you take this moment to add your voice to the historical record? Hmm. And they each had a different tack. Some of them immediately sicked a lawyer on us and we had to spend all kinds of time responding to legal, you know, and I didn't have any money to hmm. be, to have a lawyer. So 
Um, actually, it was a funny story. I got a phone call from one of the drug companies to come meet with them. Yeah. And oddly, it was in a hotel in New Jersey. I didn't understand why, but I don't know if you know the Meadowlands, but that's where people get buried. And it was relatively near the Meadowlands in New Jersey. And I thought, I, I'm not going to this meeting myself. Um, but I wanted to seem responsive to them if they were interested in participating in the film. So I had my husband come with me and drive me to the meeting and pretend he was my attorney. <laughs> and I sat in the room with this drug company executive and his attorney, who it turns out he just worked out of this hotel in New Jersey for reasons that were unclear to me. Yeah. Um, and my husband played lawyer and we withstood, you know, we did not take money to, to make a different version of the film, which had been offered. Yeah. Um, and then months and months and months later, when those executives came to the New York premiere of the film and I asked my husband to stand and I thanked him, <laughs> I saw their jaws drop because they were like, wait a minute. I thought he was her lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> I was just such, so small potatoes at the time that it just, you know, I did what I could to withstand it. Um, and some, you know, a few of them did choose to help in different ways. Some of them provided archival footage or photographs and didn't want to be credited. And some provided archival photographs and did want to be credited. So, you know, we did what we could to, to garner their participation and, um, and, you know, and, and we're always very honest about what our filmmaking process was. You know, we did not allow the head of the PPTA, their trade association, to do an interview in the film because he wasn't a living or a, part a first person participant in the events. Okay. But we did allow him to put a statement on the DVD along with all of the patient advocacy groups so they could talk about the safety advances they had made in the years in between. So, you know, we, we tried different things to make sure everybody felt heard. Uh, and then we weren't just trying to stir a pot, you know, just to make make trouble or make a ruckus, you know, that there really was intention to re-educate the community. How, how I mean, just just because obviously it's independent film and you, you've not got the economies of scale, how, how fearful does it become making a film when you've got that noise saying don't make it? Because obviously the easier thing to do is do nothing as yeah. opposed to pursue the film that you're doing. Totally. I mean, you um I'm stubborn, and so, and, and at some point, you've invested so much um, yeah. personally, you know, um, not even monetarily necessarily, though that happened too, but just my time, you know, years yeah. and years of my life, and and I just was really committed to the people that I had said I would tell this story, you know, to have yeah. the head of the Centers for Disease Control of that division call you up and say, I've never spoken to anyone about this, but I'm entrusting you with this story. Yeah. Felt, you know, there feels like a responsibility, but I was terrified quite a lot of the time and tried not to put my address on things because I was working out of my house and, um, I wasn't really sure they'd come for me, but you know, it just, it was frightening to, to, to be up against companies that had pockets that were so big, but in the end, the strategy was right. You know, they were really reliant on the patient advocacy group to, to still allow them to sell their product. And I just, um, I, you know, doubled down on those relationships and said, if, if they want to maintain those relationships with the patients, then I, I need to make sure the patients understand I'm also, you know, looking out for their best interest and have them help me. And so we did, we did that, but I, you're not, you're exactly right. It was terrifying. I was really young. It was one of the first films I made independently. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's also just a ignorance is bliss thing going on, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we did it. I don't know. Somehow we finished it and you know, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it, but it was definitely born of a lot of heartache and, and grief. 
from from a, from a more practical standpoint, making a film in of itself, not just the subject you were tackling, mm-hmm. how as a documentarian do you, as the story evolves, stick within the kind of the boundaries of where you want to be, as opposed mm. to, I mean, I guess the corporate speak is sort of where you get project creep, where suddenly somebody says something and that opens up an avenue into this other world. You're going, is this still relevant? Right. They're, they're part of my group of inf- people I want to be informed by, but they're they're taking me somewhere else here. Is this a good place or should I ignore it? How, how do you manage that as far as investigating a subject? Well, and that's a, that's a really good question. And I think the answer is not always the same depending on the film. Mm. There are some films, you know, I try to figure out what the spine of the film is. You know, what is the story you're really trying to tell? Mm-hmm. And so there's a test always, you know, does this hang on the spine? You know, does it, is it, or are we all the way out at the fingertips with nothing between the fingers and the spine you set aside for a while? And sometimes those story threads become relevant again in ways you don't expect. And so, yeah. Anybody I speak to in the course of making a film, as far as I'm concerned, is fair game until that film is finished and hits the screen. Okay. But there are times where, you know, I've moved into making more of these verite films where we're following unfolding stories. And there's times the story takes you somewhere you were not expecting. And you do need to evaluate and figure out, well, is is this the story I meant to tell? Or was the original story the story I meant to tell? Or is it a natural progression and we're okay to walk down that road? And I don't know that you always know the answer. <clears throat> I think in independent films, on the one hand, there's a little more latitude because there's not a commissioning editor, you know, on your shoulders saying, that's not the film I was buying. And on the other hand, we have less resources, fewer resources. And so we really need to be much more um, precise in how we choose to spend money. Mm. Um, so it, that's the balance. And I'm not sure. Sometimes we know and sometimes we don't. Um, in the, in the, for me, in verite films, if I'm do, really filming an unfolding story, it usually means I start editing much earlier than I otherwise might have because you really find your story in the edit room and it's helpful to begin to work with the material and you start to see, oh, this character does really work or this person's falling flat or there's no there there. You know, we didn't capture anything that tells that story, even though you thought you did. Um, so that's usually, you know, you kind of try to get in the edit room for some period of time and see what's what. Um, but yeah, it's a, you know, sometimes it's exactly right to march yourself right off a cliff and you land on a whole other, you know, mountain with a different story. And sometimes you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that at all. And I wish I knew the answer to which is when, but I don't know. We make these films by Braille sometimes. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is then, then, then experience, only experience of doing, going through it can tell you. So it's almost like in a, in a, in a, in a weird way, like a screenwriter might do a complete page on rewrite. That could be your experience. You could go in with this idea of a documentary you're making and then partway through doing it, you'll go, hold on a minute. No, it's not white. It's black. And then suddenly you're following the black. Is that totally. what you mean? Yeah, completely. There's a film that I just produced, Camera Person, which is releasing in the U.S. now mm-hmm. and hopefully in the U.K. soon. Um, cinematographer Kirsten Johnson, uh, who's shot many of the films everyone's heard of, The Oath, Citizen Four, with Michael Moore, Fahrenheit 9-11. Hmm. Um, she shot many of the films that have done, you know, told social justice stories through the years. And she just made a film essentially of what it means to film and be filmed. Um, it's essentially a memoir of um, using the raw footage from films she shot, but it's her story. And that film started as a completely other film that she was making in Afghanistan for many years. And at the, once that film was finished, 
she took it back to show the subject and the subject withdrew her permission, mm. which meant the film could no longer stand on its own. And I came aboard just as Kirsten was sort of in this moment of now what? If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Once she lost access to this one subject in her film and needed to really rethink her whole film, mm. um, she began to, she wanted to explore what her work meant. How did she wind up in a position where a subject withdrew her permission and she didn't know that was happening all along? Mm. Um, and so in that case, we, you know, fell off of one mountain with the, with the original film she was making and we landed, we actually didn't know where we were landing, but landed on this other mountain, it turns out, where we, we're then able to pull in footage from all of these other films and really have something to say about what it means to be a cinematographer and to be present in people's lives. And it, in some ways it explores the craft of documentary filmmaking and in many ways it just explores humanity. Yeah. Um, and we didn't know that, you know, that wasn't a journey I could have told you when I took on the film as producer, I couldn't have told you that's where this film was headed, but um, it's been opening to quite wonderful acclaim. And so I think people are appreciative that we wound up on a different mountain, so to speak. I think you've just nailed why it must be an absolute pain to raise finance for a documentary. <laughs> yeah, it's no joke. <laughs> and you that film in particular, because it really never knew what it was until yeah. it was finished. And that, that's a hard road to hoe, yeah. Out of interest, just picking up something you said there, which I'd not heard before, where you said the subject withdrew their permission. Does that, does that then, does that, what do you call it, does that um, trump having already signed release forms to be in something? Well, it doesn't. Technically, it shouldn't. Um, okay. But we are I, I'm among a class of filmmakers, including Kirsten, where we sort of have a first do no harm principle, right? How do you move around in the world and in this world where people entrust you to their stories without, you know, you don't, we don't want to hurt anyone. And when this oh, woman yeah. was actually frightened for her, her life and her family's life, because right. Afghanistan had changed from when they started the film to when they finished the film. Yeah. Um, we just, and we didn't feel we could say for sure it would never be seen in Afghanistan now that you're in a global world with of YouTube. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, she just didn't feel right to have it move forward. So on legal grounds, yes, we probably could have proceeded with the film and released it, but we have to wake up with ourselves every morning and, um, and I'm with her. Like there was, there was no way forward once someone said, I fear for my life. Um, I've made other films where we've, we've encountered issues like that where maybe we blur someone out or we, I made a film, produced a film called E-Team that's on Netflix where we followed human rights investigators into Syria and Libya. And we did go back and make sure every person who was chronicled in the film still felt safe being on screen. And there were a couple of both translators or fixers that we cut from the film and one or two stories of testimony that we had gotten purely because we did not want to be responsible for somebody's, um, you know, demise um so so i think there's there's higher power so to speak sometimes we have to follow a different truth even if the legal truth is that we can proceed oh no no i'm all for ethics yeah <laughs> Yay, <laughs> I, think, <me> too. <laughs> I think you know the the brutal capitalist world we live in is brutal enough we don't we, yeah. don't, we don't have to exercise on everybody we meet <laughs> exactly exactly and and i think you know making documentary films we really ask for people for so much yeah um and and for total trust uh, because they, they don't usually, there's, you know, we may show the film to, to someone in the film, to a subject, but 
they don't have editorial control over that film, right? They can't come in and say, I don't like that scene or I don't like the way you make me look. So they really are giving up a lot of themselves in, in allowing us to make films about them. Uh, so, so trying to preserve that trust and, and honor the trust is, I think, a high, a high goal. Um, and particularly for films like Bad Blood, like Camera Person, like E-Team, where we're actually in these people's lives for years and years at a time, mm. right? We don't do it. We don't do one story or one article and get to move on. They need to allow us back over and over again and with a camera over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. It really, it behooves us to be the best people we can be um, so that we aren't, so that we're honoring that relationship throughout its life. This isn't something I thought about before we did the, we, I mean, in true, true tradition of what you've been talking about, wasn't something I thought about before we did the conversation, but do, do you think this, this recent burst of um, documentary podcast that's been going on, that sort of captured the imagination, do you think that's, that, that, I think that's, that's given more importance over to documentary, full stop, hasn't it, I think? Things like Serial, you mean? Yeah, yeah, Serial. Yeah. I mean, even, all, all the Ameri- I mean, I was listening to This American Life, thanks to my wife, who listens to it, you know, and you realise that there was this, there was this, this stuff that was outside of mainstream entertainment, which was telling very human stories, and you were like, wow. Right, and you really feel like you have a window into the world. I mean, it's been, on the one hand, it's been wonderful where, you know, people now talk about we're in the golden age of documentaries because places like Netflix are, is understanding it and acquiring all of this episodic documentary films like Making a Murderer um, and certainly Serial captured everyone's imagination. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I wasn't surprised, right? I know the power of a, of a good true story. You know, people really like that stuff when truth is stranger than fiction. Um, it's astounding. So I do think um, it certainly helped raise the profile um, of what we do. And I love that it's so mainstream, you know, that it's not just on the fringes. Um, and I, you know, I personally, I've always been in documentary and only been in documentary. I don't aspire to move on to Hollywood or anything like that. And mm. so I really, um, I appreciate people are now seeing, you know, I think sometimes reality television and documentary gets conflated because there's real people, quote unquote, in both. Mm. But the true, the truest sense of a documentary to allow people to be the truest version of themselves in their natural habitat, so to speak, you know, that's very different from reality television. And so if people are warming up to the idea that it's, it's enjoyable to watch real stories of people being honest with the world, as opposed to what reality television might be bringing, uh, I'm all, I'm all for that. I think that's good for everybody. Um, so, so yeah, I hope I, I love cereal. I love this American life. I, I'm a big consumer of those, those kinds of shows. And, and I think what we do is well aligned with that in terms of documentary, feature documentaries. I mean, but there, there has been sort of those, on, on the more ethical side of it, this idea of creating entertainment out of true stories and then the idea of withholding evidence you find out because it's better to hold it off until oh, late, yeah. later in and things like that, which is sort of... Right, so that was, that was the jinx got caught yeah, with yeah. that. that but it was, yeah, and I think they... I, I mean, I don't know those filmmakers personally, but I think they were probably a little caught off guard by the response to 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 their decisions um because i think there's a lot of times filmmakers are are being honest to the higher truth so to speak right so they they may take some artistic license but the 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 overall truth the 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 basic truths are not compromised Mm. and i think in the case of the jinx it was probably one of the first times that a high profile currently unfolding criminal case 
was was making you know was was hitting the air in real time, mm. so to speak. Um, so the you know the burden was greater, but it turns out they weren't making the same old sausage. Um, and you know, and I think that's the beauty of what we do is that we're pushing boundaries. What's a documentary and um, how the form changes? The the better technology gets, the more savvy the filmmakers get the more resources we have because players like Netflix are coming into the game, you know, the more we're going to find ourselves in a position we hadn't contemplated before. Um, and so I think that's what happened with the jinx. We suddenly realized, you know, what do you do if you have key evidence um, <laughs> and your edit is not, you know, you're, you're not slated to air for six months and, and maybe they misstepped on that one. You know, I'm not sure, but I, sh I will tell you that it was a huge conversation amongst filmmakers and my peers and I think we're all quite mindful of what we have filmed and what we have in the can, so to speak, uh, and what our obligations are to the wider world, both to protecting the people we're filming with and to protecting um, the wider world. <laughs> no, um, no, no. I was, I was sat. I mean, I had the other end of it, which is sat. I was sat down last week with a, a British filmmaker, and he's done a documentary called "Hostage to the Devil," which is about a notorious from the sounds of the documentary, illegal exorcist who worked in America. Mm. So it was an Irishman who, who got chucked out of the Jesuit priests. And in 1976, he wrote a book of the same title. Mm. Now, I didn't know this story. And I'm watching this documentary without... I've been sent the link to preview it, as, you, as journalists do. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it seemed so contrived watching it. I had to stop it to Google whether or not it was real or a mockumentary. Mm. I was kind of caught by... You know, it, 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 you, you're caught by being... Sort of too media savvy, as it were, right? That you right. don't even believe your eyes anymore. You kind of going, "Well, is this real anymore?" And you check it, and once you know it's real, you can relax. Right. And it was only because nobody had given me a press release, or nobody, had, you know, I hadn't had the assurances. And because I've watched other mockumentaries in recent weeks, I was kind of like, "Well, this feels like a mockumentary." Right, right, right. How can it possibly be true? And I think there's some things that we try to do sometimes so that we don't blur the lines, like sometimes over stylizing things, you know sort of puts another layer. That's what people are used to. And so it puts another layer between the viewer and the film, the story, and maybe not, not in, with a good outcome, you know, it doesn't do justice to the film. So sometimes we spend, we do spend quite a lot of time as we make these films screening it amongst our peers, because they're the meanest <laughs> and the most honest. Um, and they'll call you out on the things that, that really aren't working. Um, and I think we all do it for each other because the truth is, I think the craft has gotten better as a result. Um, if I could say, you know, I can't quite put my finger on it, but this feels dishonest. This scene feels dishonest. Um, and we may not be able to solve that for a fellow filmmaker, but we can tell them that what they're doing isn't working. And generally that means, yeah, it's time to go back into the footage or go back to the story or go back to the field and figure out what what is making that feel dishonest if, in fact, it's the, it was the truest version of what you had to say. Um, but I think stripping out some of the some of the things that entertainment has put in that connote reality, you know, yeah. multiple camera shots, and not to say we don't use two cameras sometimes, but you know, sort of slick intercutting between two people who are clearly talking about each other an hour apart, you know, after something went down, you know, like that kind of those might not be tools that we deploy in our world. I so. mean, I, I mean, I got I, I found. I did some sort of experiment in, with, the, with Britflix to do some presenting review shows and stuff. And, and we put a few out to, to sort of test with peers and stuff. And the guy who shot the thing had shot everything of me not looking at the camera. 
Mm, that makes a big difference. And I found out from what everybody just started telling me, going, that's what you do in documentaries to make someone look like a bad guy. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, that's so funny. Yeah, we, we'd, we'd work really hard on the eyeline, actually. So there's different approaches. But mm. if you were doing an interview, you wouldn't want to be staring directly into the camera necessarily. But the interviewer might literally have their head almost touching the lens mm. so that your eye line is just off camera, but people can look you in the face and look you in the eye. Uh, yeah, yeah. But Errol Morris, who's like interrogating someone, he has a whole device, the Interatron, where someone can literally look directly into the camera um, and still see the interviewer. So they're making eye contact with someone, but it's a whole like lens and mirror thing. Mm. Um, and then there's the people, yeah, you just shoot from the back because they're, you know, High, you know, backroom alley doctor or something, <laughs> and don't want to be seen. So yeah, so the so you're the the little the little um, the little tricks that kind of trigger people to 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 know what they think they know about what they're watching. You know, I think they're subconscious now because we've all been trained for so long, as you said, media savvy. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes there's subtle things we do that grow trust or or betray trust. Now, I mean, just just going back, going back to to uh, to Bad Blood, and just to remind people, it's 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 going to get its first UK screening at, at ICA, which is on the Mall. I don't know if you know where that is at all. Um, I am less familiar with where it's screening. I was thrilled to hear they were doing it and supported their the screening, but I didn't know where it was screening. You're down the road from Buckingham Palace. You're basically on the Queen's Road. It's sort of, oh right. It's like a boulevard straight. If you come out of the cinema and look to your right, you just there's Buckingham Palace, 400 yards away. Well, I hope the film is effective because I know um, justice has been elusive for folks out in the UK. You know, in the US, with tort reform and things like that, there was some settlement by the drug companies. Mm. Um, minimal for most people, too little, too late. But, uh, but I know it's been very difficult for folks in the UK. Um, so I, I hope, I wish them success in their cause and whatever, whatever the upshot and goal they want to have, I hope it comes swiftly. Indeed. Well, look, well, thank you very much for giving us your time uh, for what isn't a new film, but obviously is an important subject. And uh, and, and the guys in Brittany were showing it, are, are using it as a platform to help the discussion grow again. Wonderful. Britain. Well, my pleasure. And thank you for having me. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.